Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about people who use drugs in the hospital setting and how we can best support and manage patients um, during these troubling times for, for the patient and sometimes also for the hospital staff. So, Fergal, the reason I thought we'd talk about this is... Um, I've recently been involved in an incident where we had a patient who, who'd come into the hospital quite sick with, um, with uh, well, essentially sepsis, so a, a bacterial infection, really low blood pressure, needed some high dependency care and antibiotics, and um, was using heroin and um, had, a, had a central line in and um, managed to, to, to get some heroin in through the central line. Um, which was then subsequently removed while they were in the high dependency unit and they were discharged with um, oral antibiotics, then came back with, with worsening heart failure um, and had initially agreed to, to treatment with, with some suboxone and hopefully a long-acting injectable buprenorphine after that and also expressed interest in their partner getting treatment, but then disclosed that they had some heroin um, on, on their person while they were in hospital and subsequently was found to be using heroin later that night in one of the hospital bathrooms and refused to hand the drugs over. It was quite polite, not aggressive to the staff, but was matter of fact about their need for using heroin. And then unfortunately uh, chose to discharge against uh, medical advice when they weren't really provided much of a choice. Um, and it was a bit, bit distressing because this was a young person who was quite sick and their medical condition is most likely going to de deteriorate without adequate care. And I just felt maybe the person could have been supported in a bit more of a harm reduction um, measure because we know a lot of our patients who use drugs will be using drugs before they come into hospital, often multiple times during the day before coming into hospital. And I think sometimes to expect people to, to be abstinent while they're in hospital for a, for a short period of time can sometimes be unreasonable and puts unreasonable burdens on, on patients and sometimes might set them up to fail and also create conflict with, with staff. What, what are your thoughts? I've talked a lot about this, but uh, I'd be interested to see how, what you think, Virgil. Uh, it's such a complex case, isn't it, Philippe? Um, I think when, I'm, when I heard this story, I, I, first of all, my impression was, well, you know, it's, it's yet another example of how chaotic patients with substance use disorders are. And I think it's important to understand the chaos the patient the hospital, and potentially then we can expand that to the environment and community services. So if we look at the chaos, I mean, you know, if we go back to the diagnostic criteria for opioid use disorder, you have uh, persistent use despite ill health consequences. That to me, it, when I started out in my career, I was absolutely amazed at just how much damage people with opioid use disorder, heroin use disorder, would inflict upon themselves to chase the next high. I could not believe it. You know, you've described someone who's got a central line, injecting through that central line, now heart failure, probably endocarditis. I used to look after people with spinal abscesses and impending paralysis who would still inject. You know, and I, I, just, I, I just could not believe it. But I suppose it reflects the absolute loss of control that is associated with dependency and the absolute chaos that people live in and also this, this persistent use despite ill health consequences. What would you say to that? I think 
it is a, a difficult and, and complex issue. And, and you are right because we have a, a quite a few issues going on simultaneously. We've got the acute medical issue for which patients come into hospital. We've got the substance use disorder and all that entails, which is what you've mentioned and what we've mentioned in multiple episodes of Cracking Addiction about that um, that scenario where the substance use takes primacy over all other things in a person's life, mm. including the acute medical condition, which is... Um, um, cause the patient to come to hospital, uh, the lack of connection, the, the lack of previous interaction with, say, hospital services. Uh, and sometimes also we're dealing with stigma and negative associations with hospital as well. So we're dealing with patients who sometimes expect to be treated poorly because they've been treated poorly in the past. They've been called names or told that they were uh, an, an addict, for example. And we're dealing with quite marginalised people, sometimes with poor health literacy as well. So you, you mentioned chaos, Fergal, and I think chaos is is a very apt description because we're dealing with sometimes very complex, chaotic medical conditions, complex, chaotic situations, and sometimes in healthcare professionals that can stir up feelings of conflict, agitation, anger, you know, those scenarios of why can't you just do what I tell you to do kind of thing, that almost paternalistic <laughs> approach. And it, can, and, it, and it does lead to conflict and, uh, on both parties. And I think um, it, it kind of creates situations where people leave the hospital system sometimes before their period of care is finished. And, and that can just be disastrous. Um, what do you think about that, Fergal? Yeah, you've just said so much. Uh, I mean, I think I need to tease that out. I mean, first of all, the stigma, the marginalization and the poor health literacy of the patient, then, then the, you know, the paternalistic, the frustration on the part of uh, the hospital staff and then, you know, the, the, the enforced discharge. I mean, it's so true, isn't it, that, that our patient cohort represents the marginalized in society who are used to living on the edges, who are used to being stigmatized and are used to being rejected. So for them, being told, you're not welcome here, it's nothing new. You know, when you and I go to hospital, you know, there's almost a fear of disobeying the, the word from on high from the, from, the, from the senior consultant. I mean, you know, we don't even dream of that. But for, the, for, the, for our patients, they're used to that rejection. They're used to that conflict and they're used to rejecting medical advice. Um, and they're also used to dealing with the consequences of it. So for the, for the, there's no, there, there is no fear. Well, you know, there is less of a fear for accepting the consequences of ongoing drug use because of the saliency that is associated with drug use and the primacy, as you say, of that drug use. Why can't you just do what I tell you to do? Oh, <laughs> or, or, you know, some, some of my colleagues actually say to me, why don't you look after normal patients? I've heard that as well. Um, and I think that if, you, if you're going to look after people who are marginalized and stigmatized, you have to, you have to embrace the concept of mindfulness and motivational interviewing. You have to meet your patient halfway. You can never tell your patients what to do. You can merely advise your patients and you have to walk with them. Then, and that is the key thing about um, you know, motivational interviewing. You're, you know, you're, actually create, you're talking to them, you're creating dissonance, you're helping them achieve their own goals or to, to, um, initially to decide their goals. So if you, if you take a motivational interviewing approach, that's the way to deal with this issue. Saying things like, why can't you just do what I tell you to do is just never going to work. So I think understanding the principles of motivational interviewing will help um, our colleagues 
deal with their own internal frustration at having to deal with patients who are not going to take their advice, who don't take their advice, and who are getting sicker in front of their very eyes as a result. I mean, we've got to understand that clinicians, doctors, health workers, uh, nurses, uh, allied health workers, we're not naturally uh, paternalistic. I don't believe we are. We're not, certainly we're not, we're not deliberately stigmatizing. We're not bad people. We want to see the best outcomes for our patients. And, and when those outcomes are blatantly as a result of patients not following instructions, we just don't know how to handle that. The system does not know how to handle um, motivational interviewing. The system itself doesn't know how to do motivational interviewing. And we in the system don't know how to do motivational interviewing. And, you know, what, what do you think about that? I, I think sometimes when we face complexity and we're pushed to the limits of our capacity and capability, it can lead to frustration. And I'm talking from the healthcare provider perspective. And sometimes that frustration can, can boil over and, and be targeted towards patients who are behaving in, in ways we're not familiar with and we can't understand mm -hmm. why a patient would act in this way seemingly against their interests and seemingly in contravention to, to what we've been taught. And from the patient perspective viewpoint, and I've, I've tried to put myself a, a, a bit in, in, in a patient's shoes, and it's always a, a difficult thing to, to try and do. And I think the, the, the best that we can hope for is to try and be empathetic and, and, and try and review things. Uh, the reason a lot of people use substances is to try and manage trauma, try and manage anxiety, try and manage stress. What could be more stressful than coming into a hospital situation or a hospital setting with an acute illness where you're not quite sure what's going on, you feel awful, and you don't know how to regulate these kind of emotions? We're putting people in a situation where they're probably more likely to use drugs to try and self-soothe and self-calm themselves. After all, these are the strategies that have worked prior to coming into hospital, and these are the, the techniques that the patient themselves knows. So we're asking a patient to come into a situation or a place they don't trust to be managed by people they've had negative experiences with previously, who they feel will judge them, who they feel will stigmatize them, and potentially won't address their needs. I've certainly seen a lot of patients who've been on opioid substitution therapy or who've been using heroin, who've been denied access to opioid medications or been rationalized opioid medications because after all, you're on methadone or you're on suboxone, that's an opioid, you don't need any extra, which is ridiculous because we know these patients have a high opioid tolerance and in fact will need increased amounts of opioids. So when patients get treated poorly and they've experienced this multiple times, it does create distrust and patients will revert to doing what they've done previously to, to self-soothe and manage their situation. You've talked about the complexity of of patients with substance use disorder and using motivational interviewing techniques and a harm reduction strategy to try and keep patients engaged. And we've talked about engagement multiple times in Cracking Addiction about how engagement is probably the most important thing that we can do as, as doctors with our patients with substance use disorders. So I wholeheartedly agree with everything you've said with regards to that, Fergal. It's a difficult situation. And reflecting on the case I mentioned earlier, I can't help but wonder if maybe a harm reduction model such as when the patient was maybe found using um, substances in, in the bathroom, whether or not he could have been offered better lighting, maybe 
um, sterile injecting equipment, uh, alcohol swab to, to clean his skin. If if something along those kind of strategies and the fact that he, he could potentially be monitored post and then engaged with the addiction medicine service the following day to talk about further strategies, um, such yeah. as, you know, how we can better manage um, his symptoms with opioid um, substitution therapy. Whether something like that could have led to a better outcome, because now we have a person who's lost to the system and also his partner who he had been interested in trying to, to get onto opioid substitution is also lost to follow up as well. And we know that the morbidity and mortality of ongoing heroin use is, is high, whereas if this patient had been engaged in opioid substitution therapy, potentially we could have decreased his and his partner's risk. I know that's probably a bit controversial talking about um, uh, yeah, patients using drugs in hospital and, and adopting that harm reduction model, but I do firmly believe that we should start thinking along those ways. What are your thoughts, Virgil? <laughs> I, I agree with you. Um, I, I, I think it'll be a long time before we, we have hospitals or where we have harm reduction, safe injecting principles that we would find in a safe injecting room uh, actually incorporated into mainstream medical practice and as an inpatient, that's a long way down the line, I would imagine. But I think as a halfway house, I think it's important to go back to your issue about why are the people, why, why is this patient actually using drugs on the ward when surely they, we are giving them enough? I think it's really important to, to emphasize that you have to keep your patients comfortable. And that may mean Giving them sedation, it may mean giving them opioids. It may mean giving them more opioids than you would be comfortable with otherwise. But I think it's really important to involve an addiction specialist or an addiction service in that decision, and I think it's entirely appropriate for those decisions to be made. Because as you've already alluded to, losing the patient causes far worse outcomes for health. So keeping the patient in hospital, I think, should be the priority of all services, and that may mean keeping the patient comfortable and prescribing more than you would otherwise choose to. The other issue, I mean, you know, if we're talking about, you know, safe injecting practices, we're talking about people bringing in you know, or bringing in needles and their own kit. So, you know, we're talking about replacing that. But this then brings us on to the, the next issue about the safety of the environment for other patients and the healthcare workers. I mean, you know, so one of the, one of the issues that I've, I've had to debate in, in similar cases is we can't have this behavior on the ward because what if somebody else catches HIV or HCV from a used needle hanging in a hospital toilet. It would be, it, you know, the hospital would be shut down. What do you say to that then? I think the standard for universal precautions um, should, be, should be undertaken. Uh, we know that patients use drugs in or around hospitals. We know, say, for example, the fact that despite most hospitals being smoke-free environments, you go outside any hospital, you'll see people, not only patients, but staff smoking. So people who have dependence to, to substances will find a way of using substances. The simple mm. measures uh, to talk about your example of, of Sharps-related uh, injuries or the risk of bloodborne virus transmission would be to have that frank and open discussion, which would probably only occur if a patient is confident that you're not going to judge them or stigmatise them, and then talk about standard precautions. The simple one would be to provide a Sharps container to the patient. And then after you've used um, your needle, put it in the Sharps container. A lot of bathrooms do already have Sharps containers in, in, in hospitals anyway. But just making the standard things um, 
available to people so they know what and how to use them. The fact that they could recycle needles, for example. Uh, these kind of simple education steps would mitigate a lot of the harms and risks associated um, with what you're, uh, what you're talking about, Fergal, and I think would potentially make people feel that at least they're being listened to, that they're being heard, that they're being treated like an adult, and also foster those kind of more mature conversations rather than no abstinence. In terms of um, addiction medicine, we rarely expect people to be abstinent and we are focused on a harm reduction model, except seemingly when you're an acute patient in a hospital, in which case you're, you, you must be abstinent during your period of care, mm. which is um, to me seems a bit ridiculous. I don't know if that's yeah, too I controversial gonna... of you or not. Well, no, it's, I, I share that controversy uh, because I, I, this is the, th the issue about the, the difference in care standards in the community versus inpatients. You know, in the community, we know our patients use drugs on top of the pharmacotherapy. You know, and it's not necessarily the main driver, driver of how we actually treat our patients. And we, 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 you know, we have to tolerate a certain amount of drug use on top. But we don't tolerate any drug use when the patient's in a high-stress environment. It doesn't Absolutely. make sense to me. No. And I guess the last thing I was going to talk about, Fergal, or get your opinion on was, uh, what's your view on behavior contracts? I, I, I think they're both <laughs> dubious ethically. And um, there was a Cochrane review a few years ago that actually, um, they, they reviewed a lot of studies. The studies were small um, volume. So there was nothing. Uh, and ultimately, the, the evidence was neither here nor there. So it, the evidence was not... Um, either positive or negative in the Cochrane review in terms of how effective they are. But this was over a wide range of things. So it wasn't just addiction medicine behavior contracts. These were also mm. weight loss um, uh, interventions and medication compliance interventions. But they are quite coercive, in my opinion. They're very one-sided, as in uh, it's from the treating team to the patient, uh, rarely the other way around. And they can sometimes cover a broad range of behaviours and a broad range of interventions. And sometimes I feel like they're just used as a, a face-saving tool to try and force the patient to leave or uh, as the first step in initiating the patient's discharge. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yes, I totally agree. I, I think the behavioural contracts basically facilitate forced discharge. They make the treating team feel better. They don't make the patient feel better. Um, I so I say that in the context of substance use disorder. Um, I'm not. I, I think the the. I think it's a bit more blurred in the context of personality disorder, and that's the only really other. That's the only other situation in which I've come across them. It's personality disorder and the management of acute care for substance use disorder. And if I'm honest with you, I believe that patients with borderline personality disorder don't actually benefit from behavioral contracts. It just, I think thinking about it, it really just means that it's easy to discharge them. You know, what's your view on the issue that some patients with borderline personality disorder have needs that just cannot be met by the service and how do you deal with that situation? I think it's really important to be clear about what we can provide, what we can tolerate, and kind of the parameters of care that are, that are available. Um, and I'm with you. I think a contract or behavior contract is nece not necessarily going to aid in, in the treatment or management of, of the patient, but it is um, important, especially with patients with behaviors of concerns or challenging uh, personalities, just to um, explain what the parameters of care are available, what can be 
tolerated per se, but also to make sure that our uh, colleagues and staff are not um, treated in a physically or verbally abusive manner, because obviously there should be zero tolerance to, to violence towards staff. But I think clear conversation and documentation about what can and cannot be managed and tolerated um, in an adult environment is, is paramount. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that, Fergal? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a contra- controversial subject. I, I don't think we'll ever get to the, the bottom of this issue. So for today, yes, I would. <laughs> Absolutely. So in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've, we've covered one of those hot button topics, which is um, how to manage patients who, who inject drugs in, in the hospital setting. Uh, all our opinions are our own, obviously, but it, it is something that we do need to um, take a, a, an informed viewpoint from and try and, I think, initiate a harm reduction principle and harm reduction viewpoint in managing patients. So thanks for your attention on this episode and bye for now. Bye.